John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1086.PR1506, certificate number 46804, Rojas v. Marcos. The former Philippine president arrived at 5577 Kalani Anaoli Highway around 8.30 last night. It was the first time Marcos had left Hickam Air Force Base since he and a party of about 90 arrived here from Manila 27 days ago. Last night's move was made with the assistance of Secret Service agents, U.S. Air Force personnel, and plainclothes officers of the Honolulu Police Department. What Do you have a sense of what the largest judgment in history was uh, in terms of like a financial liability? It was probably somebody judging, oh, you, you don't mean like somebody judging my clothes or something. No, no, no. That's a, that's a big judgment, but I'm talking about a, like a court judgment against a plaintiff where they end up uh, paying out. You'd like to think it would be some super rich corporation that gets nailed for an oil spill or a data leak or something and just has to pay billions. You are not wrong. The The largest settlement in history was against the tobacco companies. Oh. Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds. In 1998, they settled a a class action suit against, you know, brought by 46 different states. I have a friend who was a young up-and-coming lawyer in the 90s, and his firm represented the tobacco companies, and it just Oof. burned him out. He left the law immediately for good. Wow. And I think now he teaches medieval literature at, you know, yeah, uh, Hunter or something, adjunct professor. <laughs> right. That seems like if, if, you're a, if you're a lawyer that gets burned out, like— that's a nice place to land, a soft place to land. Like, you don't want to start out the young guys on the most evil case in history. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, they That judgment was $200 billion paid out over 25 years. Wow. it's a lot of money. Every single smoker got $200 billion. The second largest uh, on, you know, if you go and look at the legal eagle type websites that are like, what are the biggest, you know... As far as the lawyers are concerned, the biggest judgments. The second one is the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon mm. disaster, which was $18 billion. I think that would have been my guess. I forgot about the tobacco class action. Yeah. And then after that, Bank of America, um, because of their malfeasance in the financial crisis, was $16 uh-huh. billion, the mortgage-backed securities. And then after that, you know, all the usual suspects, J.P. Morgan, 
Number five, Bank of America, six, Citigroup, you know, like, yeah, they're different for, for different reasons. It's another part, it's another one of the mortgage crises. They got, they got nabbed a, a couple of times. 2014 was a big year for, um, for busting people. Big year for lawyers. Big year for Big lawyers. year for, what, what are they called? Uh, what, what kind of shoes do you have if you're a really good law firm? Brown shoe. Brown, right. No, white shoe. White, white shoe, shoe law, law firm. It's brown shoe navy. What does that even mean if you're a white shoe law firm? Well, you know, white sh- Who wears who, who white wears, shoes? Who wears white shoes? You know, southern lawyers. Astronauts. And, yeah, people in seersucker suits in uh, Washington, D.C. in the summer. If you're in Washington, D.C. in the summer, you have to wear a certain kind of breathy breathy suit because it's 100% humidity. If I had to go to court, my lawyer was wearing a, was just wearing white shoes, though? Yeah. I would be like, no. Uh, you know, it dates. It dates. There's no brown shoe navy anymore either. I don't even know what that means. That's what the 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 real brass would was allowed to wear brown shoes. No, the black shoe navy was the navy that was you know were the the sailors that were on a ship. Yeah. And the brown shoe navy were the pilots. Uh, but uh, somewhere in the 50s or 60s, they they stopped. Um, they stopped letting the pilots wear special jaunty outfits. But my dad always referred to himself as Brown Shoe Navy. Yeah. And I was like, BSN, represent. I, know, I know, dad. I know. You're, you're a special little sailor. It does make it sound like you're a fan of a band. Oh, yeah, I'm in the Brown Shoe Navy. See? Like if you had told me that's what like um, Leonard Skinner fans were called, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I love the Brown Shoe Navy. The problem with the word brown in that context is that it always evokes brown nosing you know, like brown shoe navy, it just sounds like what? Is there some kind of poop? Poop on the shoes? Do you have that problem with "Old Brown Shoe" by um, George Harrison? No, a great song and one that you see kind of featured in the latest Beatles documentary, "Get Back." George comes in at the at the end. Spoiler alert! And is like the oh. end of the movie is him rushing in saying, "Lads." <laughs> I've written a new song about shoes. I'm quite prepared for that eventuality. You know, it's a great song, and there they spend the whole movie going, "Oh, we need some more fast ones." You know, some exciting rockers, yeah. and then George comes in with this what I always considered one of the great late period George songs, and they're just like, you know, of course Paul and John are like, "Oh no, let's spend more time working on Dig a Pony." It turns out they're saying we need more rockers just so they don't have to put "All Things Must Pass" on the record, <laughs> and then when he writes a fast one, they're like, "Uh, or or, or that." Yeah, or what we meant was no George songs. <laughs> Um, but in fact, the second largest uh, court judgment, although unfortunately later overturned, was a $22 billion judgment against Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda. Former Filipino dictator. Philippine, Filipino dictator by a, um, by a locksmith <laughs> named... Roger Rojas, who claimed that in the early 1970s, he was a, Rojas was a, a locksmith and, but treasure hunter. And we've done a lot of shows on Omnibus lately about lost, lost treasures and. And Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. Lost treasures in Southeast Asia and also just in general, lost treasures. Um, and I think it's, I think a lot of these have been fan suggestions because. Our listeners really feel like 
We're, I understand the show. This is a podcast about lost treasures of Southeast Asia. Yeah, we love Omnibus. Everybody loves lost treasure. I think a lot of uh, futurelings might be also metal detectorists, mm. right? I mean, you can picture someone. The problem is to use a metal detector, you cannot also be listening to a podcast because it's a very audio-oriented search, right? Your machine is sending you a... You get a little sound. Beep, beep, That's beep, why beep. they've got those headphones on. So I don't know. I don't know how the two well, quit. Well, future listeners will have found the show in the ground at some point. Right. They will have pulled out some um, some bauxite cylinders with the show inscribed in a series of finely etched um, pegs and lines. I always imagine futurelings um, being able to detect magnetic fields through their tentacles, right, or through special like their their special protozoan hair that covers their entire physical form. So what does that mean? They can just wave their hands in the air as if they don't care and they can pick up podcasts? Yeah. No, no, no. They're, they're detecting metal in the ground with their, you know, they like send out some clicks or pings or something. And they're like blurb, blurb, blurb. And that means I found a penny. I found a, a a Lincoln penny. (laughs) It's still got Lincoln on it. I'm a millionaire. This is before they put Trump on the penny. Uh, so, but the thing is that, that our listeners are not wrong. And I know there, there are quite a few people, futurelings on the Facebook page that object to how many shows we've been doing. About buried treasure in Southeast Asia? Well, no, uh, shows that are suggested by other listeners. And I I think that's just intra futureling competition. That's just jealousy. It's jealousy. You could support the show on. That's right. On Patreon. Send us your treasure hunting shows to <laughs> Omnibus, the Treasure Hunters podcast. This is a suggestion from a listener called Jimmy. He's called Jimmy. Yes. That's not his name. <laughs> right. He's just called. He's just called that. His real name is James. His name is Dexter. called Jimmy. Uh, Rojas is a treasure hunter, and he, uh, in the early 70s, found or claimed to have found... A treasure cache buried in a series of tunnels that was part of the famed Yamashita treasure hoard. I have never heard of this famed hoard. I must be watching the wrong basic cable television (laughs) Uh, series. Almost certainly you are. Or you stopped before Yamashita's hoard, uh, you know, before those shows got produced by by the people at the History Channel. I'm guessing by the Japanese name, this is from the... World War II era occupation of the Philippines? It is. So we think of World War II, and this is another, it's a World War II show too. So it's Do, really. Have we ever talked about World War II on this? <laughs> the before? only thing missing is airplanes or uh, or weird math. And this would be the, the uh, omnibus trifecta. We think about Nazi gold. All or, the time. Or Nazis. I am literally thinking about Nazi gold six times a day. It was a plot point. Nazi gold was a plot point in Every third pulp novel published in the 1960s and 70s and, all, and 80s. And all those movies they would make of them with a row of international stars along the bottom, you right. know, and Kurt Jurgens. Uh, <laughs> those were all Nazi gold hunting movies. Yeah, they were with Marlon Brando as a, as a Nazi. Uh, I don't know why I started saying Nazi. I guess I think it's funny. Is, Is it? it? Uh, let, let me gut check against you. Nazi, funny, yes. To me, no? it sounds like the old British Home Guard people in uh, what is it? Maybe bedknobs and broomsticks. Okay, they always say they're they're uh, they're they're keeping an eye out for the Nazis. Okay, so is it kind of a, to me? It sounds like Spirit of the Blitz. Yeah, that's that's where I, that's where it's derived. Okay, yeah, 
Good job. Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll keep doing that. Are you saying if you say it the more accurate German way, it sounds like you might be sympathetic to them? Yeah. Just, you know, these days you want to, you want to distance yourself from any appearance of Nazi sympathy. So I'm doing it also as a kind of, yeah, Britishism that mocks them. They could have called, who was that guy? Richard, whatever. Uh, Spencer. He could have been the snazzy Nazi. (laughs) I can see the Vanity Fair headline now. Anyway, we think of, uh, you know, the, uh, the German army uh, looted all the great wealth of Europe and converted it into gold that they deposited in Swiss banks. And those Swiss banks still have giant vaults of Nazi gold that they use to, to create, um, well, the modern financial world. And, and even still, I mean, even in recent months, you know, repatriating stolen uh, Nazi artwork is, mm. you know, it's, it's an ongoing process. And a lot of that wealth got absorbed into the global financial universe and still, and, and will forever be lost. Shouldn't Swiss banks say, okay, we've seen the movies too. Yeah. We know our thing is... You get a magic number and no questions asked. Right. But couldn't they just say, oh, yeah, and also except for the Third Reich? Our rule is you get a magic number, no questions asked, unless you're literally the Third Reich. Yeah. At that point. But I guess the banks are not incentivized to do that. No, no. they're not. And, and one of, the, one of the, um, the lesser known parts of that, uh, that conspiracy is that a lot of that gold was discovered by American troops and absorbed into a black ops fund called the Black Eagle Trust. This really happened and it was official on the books? Or is this just a bunch of GIs who were like, you know what I'd like to have, Nazi gold? No, the idea was that it was official and that the the uh, stolen Nazi gold and wealth gems and so forth that were discovered by the nazis had gems yeah they they stole gems they took everything that wasn't nailed down they're like they're pirates yeah they had old chagall paintings and you know and and cassette tapes of the early they, they had, like they nirvana had, singles they had jewish painters uh they well they're like paintings tr- trouble for the brand uh well that's the thing right i mean you know goering right loved that art <laughs> even though it was degenerate it made him take out his browning or whatever he said but the Black Eagle Trust was reputed to then fund CIA secret ops globally. Like they had, you know, the U.S. budget has always included these sort of black funds that aren't listed for, you know, clandestine activities. You're selling missiles to Iran to right. help insurgencies in Latin America. That's right. And but if you're doing it with actual Nazis, that's even better. And By better, all this I mean worse. off the books gold and wealth that reputedly funded the early days, the transition of the OSS to the CIA, and they could go buy old C forty sevens and use them to destabilize the governments of you know Central America and Southeast Asia with their own sort of private monies hmm. that they captured from. The Germans, but there's another side to that story, which is a similar tale of great wealth and uh, gold reserves and plundered gems and yeah, plundered gems, plundered gems, and uh, like sunken Buddhas, giant bells, giant bells and airplanes, <laughs> uh-huh. all beneath a giant sunken Buddha. 
if you think about the 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 Japanese conquest of the of Southeast Asia, or I'm I'm sorry, the Japanese conquest of Asia, mainland and otherwise, um, you know, the Japanese took over all of Korea and and um, big swaths e- of China, China. Uh, and then Indo-China. in the early early days of the war, swept through Hong Kong and Malaya, Singapore. The Philippines, Guam, like they in this in this enormous push, they encountered, I mean, quite a lot of resistance, but they were exceptionally good at overcoming resistance. Um, famously, the Japanese, as they went into Malaya, they fought a British army that was three times the size of the invading Japanese army and captured. Like a, a a Japanese army of thirty thousand troops captured eighty thousand British troops wow. just by moving fast and being good. Can do spirit, and they were led by uh, General Yamashita, who was a kind of old guard Japanese military man who had, over the course of his career, kind of fallen afoul of Tojo and Hirohito by being a reformer and a kind of you know, a, a a voice in the Japanese military that was 100% against attacking America, but also against invading China. He felt like they should focus on being a strong, tight military and not one that... that not was, an empire building? Yeah, not trying to conquer the globe. You know, the Japanese victory against the Russians early in the century... Uh, nobody expected that either. No one expects the Japanese impo- uh, imposition, <laughs> and they, you know, th- this was at a time when when the presumption that a European army would be sure. infinitely superior to any Asian army kind of got turned on its head. And that was the thing that led to a lot of chin stroking in Japan. Say, yeah, and if the Tsar can't take us, but it was a, you know, there were, there were two sides and, and a lot of the military. Are minds, you going to both sides? The Russo Japanese war? I'm afraid I am. A lot of Japanese military minds were like, look, we don't like what we don't want is to become, is to fall, fall prey to this like misapprehension that what this means is we should rule the globe. I guess if you have some old school Japanese sense of, honor and chivalry, right? you know, I guess the, whatever we think of as the samurai code might, um, might rule out that kind of global conquest. And I think a lot of the European, uh, perception of the Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese war was that they did have a, a Bushito code. Like they had acquitted themselves nobly in fighting a European army. So there, there was all this sort of respect, you know, the, the sort of feathered helmet era of European military diplomacy was like hat tip to you, sirs. But despite Yamashita opposing all this, he still got made the face of, no, he was, he was sidelined. He was given, you know, but at the, but at the beginning of the war, there was a all hands on deck. Yeah. All hands on deck. And so he was given charge of the Japanese invasion of Malaya and he did it and the Philippines and he did it quite successfully. Um, and he had, he had a, I guess what you would say were, was a kind of liberal or reformist sense of that, of that conquest. Because of course the Japanese conduct during world war two did not adhere to the samurai code. And, you know, and famously like 
committed a lot of terrible atrocities. But Yoshida said to his troops on the way in that his rules were, and you know, this sounds kind of basic. I mean, these are the rules of Twitter too. Um, but he says, no looting, no rape, and no arson should be committed by any of my troops. So really going against the whole looting, rape, and arson philosophy that was used in China. Yeah. My <laughs> there will be no looting, rape, and arson t-shirt is raising many questions already answered by my t-shirt. And that and, and Tojo and, and the Japanese hierarchy was was on record being suspicious of him. And, uh, and more than one instance sidelined him even after his great victories. But during the occupation of all of these countries, they did, the Japanese army did strip all of these new conquests of everything that wasn't nailed down, all of the wealth of, of these different nations. And if you think about Manila in the 1940s, you know, it was the jewel of the, of the Orient, I guess, you know, it was the Paris of, is that right? Big cosmopolitan yeah. port. Enormously, and and Hong Kong. Yeah, too. I, I mean, I think of Shanghai and Hong Kong and Singapore that way. Yeah, so all of these cities had already collected enormous wealth, and and you know the the wealth of of Asia. Uh, the Japanese captured it and consolidated it, and with the intention of taking it back to Japan to fund, you know, through surreptitious means using that money to buy supplies on the, what would have been an international market. The Germans did the same, you know, the wealth wasn't, they weren't just hoarding it. They were trying, they were using it to try and buy fuel and military supplies. Munitions, yeah. So during the course of the war, um, the legend is that Yamashita collected this great wealth. And as the war progressed, of course, the American Navy, by 1943, certainly by 1944, controlled the seas and then the air uh, in the South Pacific. So it was more and more difficult to re to safely uh, send ships back and forth to Japan because there were American subs and 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 bombers and battleships. Are we kind of in the closing years of the war here? Well, even in the, I mean, after the battle of Midway, there was really as soon as Midway, you know, it was the, it was the beginning of American yeah. naval superiority. And it took, it took another year to really just, I mean, to build enough ships and get them down there. But it's, it started to be uh, illogical, bad form to load up a ship with your, captured pirate gold and send it back to Japan because more than likely it was going to end up on the bottom of the ocean. This was the problem of the Spanish, uh, rape of central and South America. Like at a certain point, all these gold filled galleons were as likely to be sunk by British privateers as they were to make it back. The Nazis could just put the stuff on a train, right? But you got a different problem if you're an Island empire conquering other islands. And so, the legend has it that this wealth started to kind of consolidate and, and back up in the Philippines and Yamashita unable to, to, to get it to Japan had his engineers dig a series of tunnels and caverns numbering into, you know, their, uh, the, the number bandied about is 175 different tunnel complexes and, and caves and caverns not used to 
last stand, you know, not like Iwo Jima. They weren't caves to not bunkers. They weren't bunkers. Although, you know, some bunkers to protect against bombing, but they were also used to hide the treasure. They're vaults. And again, Yamashita at the very end of the war is given charge of right at the end of the war, he was put in charge of the defense of the Philippines and of Manila because the, you know, the allies were coming back. MacArthur was what MacArthur was shall returning. And he actually, uh, Yamashita said, you know, we're going to preserve Manila. We're not going to last stand here. Um, but then he was, there was a, a naval officer that came in and kind of overrode his, an, a junior officer, but kind of in the chaos of the end of the war, did make a last stand in Manila. And Manila, of course, was flattened in that conflict. You know, he, he had a scorched earth policy. The the new guy? The new guy. Who's a little more of a hardliner. But this collecting of great wealth on the part of the Japanese was supposedly endorsed personally by Hirohito, and he employed some Yakuza bigwigs that were um, that were given army commissions with the express purpose of going through uh, Asia and collecting all this gold. And it was, the project was named the Golden Lily Project after a poem that Hirohito wrote ah, about... It's always good to kiss up to the emperor. It is, about the golden lily of stealing all this stuff. And it was it was spearheaded by his own brother, Prince Chichibu. So it was, this was happening at the highest ranks. But as Manila fell, Yamashita, now this is all... This is all legend of, right? There's no, it's very hard to, it's, it's very hard to say definitively that, that any of this happened. And there are plenty of, of, uh, dubious critics that, that any of this even makes sense. Well, that's my question. Cause the last two times we did this, it turned out at the end that there might not even be airplanes and there might not be a bell. Yeah. There do, didn't appear to be airplanes and who knows about the bell, but there was a lot of money uh, in Asia that is that was not there at the end of the war, right? It all got grabbed, and either it's sitting at the bottom of the South China Sea, or it's it went somewhere. Whether Yamashita had anything to do with it or not, uh, I think it's hard. It's difficult to establish, but the legend is that he filled up these caverns with his uh, with you know this tremendous wealth, and then dynamited the entrances to the caves to seal it off and protect it until the Japanese could get back and, you know, re regain their wealth. And in some cases actually like went down into the caves with his engineers and had a big party, you know, all the people that had built the caverns had a big party and then dynamited it with them inside. Ah, well, I mean, that's what I was going to ask. This was an issue with the airplanes. One is well, there would be hundreds of people who would know the location and the, size of the treasure trove. Right. It's another, I guess it's not, a, not if you're blowing them up, another cast of the Amontillado, the cask of the Amontillado reference, except you're not doing it to one guy. You're doing it with your whole staff at the office Christmas party. Right. And, and it, all of it seems kind of not in the character of Yamashita to do. He doesn't seem to be a like, ha 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 dynamite, all of my engineers into these caverns, but that's the, that's the legend. 
and then the the Japanese fall, and Yamashita is put on trial by the American occupying forces. And given what a lot of people at the time even thought was kind of a, a, a questionable show trial, a lot of the after-the-war trials, Nuremberg and the, the trials in occupied Japan, uh, there was a, a, a lot of Western self-criticism or European and American self-criticism about whether or not it was just to, to try uh, these people for war crimes because, you know, a lot of the defense was, well, this is just victor's justice, sure. right? Like if you had lost the war, that's, I mean. That's what we would have done. Yeah, so. you, heard it, you heard it from the docket a lot. Like, well, if, if we'd lost the war, we'd, we'd be executing you for war crimes. And this is kind of a specious prosecution. Like, at, at that point, I feel like the, they can stipulate. They can be like, yeah, yeah, probably. Well, we, we agree. But what we were trying to do was establish some standards in international law that would, I mean, this was the era of the United Nations, the, 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 the hope that we, could, that we could systematize law and justice in such a way that, that everyone would be held accountable, even the victors. Um, in Yamashita's case, it was, it actually, prosecuting him was very difficult because he was on record, all of his actual orders and proclamations were, you know, fairly liberal uh, and against atrocity. And um, because he was a, a major commander, soldiers under his command committed all manner of atrocity because it's very, you know, hard to manage everybody. Um, but Yamashita said, look, I never gave a single order to to, you know, do any of these lootings, rapes, and arsons. And the American prosecutors ultimately settled on a, on a philosophy or a doctrine that a commander is responsible for the conduct of his troops, even if he... Even if he was notably against the behavior or punished the behavior. Yeah, even if he, uh, he orders its opposite, and even if he wasn't aware of the conduct. Mm. And that became enshrined in international law as the, as the Yamashita standard, which continues to be used. The Yamashita standard was used to prosecute the Serbian you know, uh, commanders right. in, the, in the Bosnian War. It, um, it's been used multiple times over the course of the last half of the 20th century and 21st century, except notably not used against American commanders in the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Which there are actually uh, UN members who would like to see prosecuted. Yeah, at, right. At, I mean, at international courts. It ends up being a case where there's documented atrocity, yeah. um, but... But and that standard has been upheld in the Hague and so forth. You can see why the standard makes sense. I mean, otherwise it's a pretty it's a pretty easy loophole for anybody to well, say, well, look at my look at my written orders. I you know, I I can't be held responsible for any of this stuff. And yeah, then, I mean, and the, then no one's ever held responsible. The Nuremberg defense was the opposite way, right? I'm I was just taking orders from my commanders. I have no culpability because I was just a loyal soldier. This is the other side, which is, well, even if you're a good commander, your, your bad soldiers reflect on you and, you're, and you end up facing the gallows, which Yamashita did. And I guess the idea is going forward, you get better military discipline 
from both rank and file and the brass if they know this is the standard to which they might be held. Right. And I think the development of walkie talkies probably, you know, <laughs> made it easier or increasingly, you know, today it's email telephones. Yeah. So, so right. wait, so, uh, are we sure this isn't a, this drone strike isn't a wedding? Well, yeah, what's crazy is now, I mean, all of those communications are completely documented. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't really make it to CNN. So you said that he did face uh, that sentence for this? Yeah. So so uh, Yamashita was hung, hanged, hanged in uh, in 1946. So really, this all was kind of rushed through, and there were multiple appeals for clemency, including two dissenting Supreme Court American Supreme Court justices. But Truman sort of bounced the ball back to MacArthur, and MacArthur had no you know no uh, no sympathy. And so he was hanged um, without ever really even being questioned about the tons and tons and tons of that never, gold. That's what I was wondering. Did that come up at trial or? Didn't come up. No. So fast forward to 1961, our locksmith, Roger, or, uh, Roger Rojas. Roger. Uh, well, so his real name is Rogelio, but Roger is his his anglophile or his a- a- anglophone name is his locksmithing going to be uh, r- germane to yeah. his discovery it does come up not not to his discovery is that but... how he finds the because <laughs> that would be a great that's the person you want to find a secret fortune is a, is a locksmith is a locksmith right. who, who are you and how did you find the secret treasure I've always I'm said that, that uh, one thing you don't want to see in a locksmith is that they're also a crackhead. Right, like sure. a crackhead locksmith seems like a really bad combination. He'll just keep a copy of every key, and you ne- and you never. It's never a plot point in a movie, like the movie Bad Lieutenant. Like it's a he's a crackhead cop, but a crackhead locksmith, just the guy that works at True Value, like work <laughs> yeah. work on that little machine, keeps every key, and, and give just, me your uh, address yeah. and your credit card. Yeah, okay, what's your credit got card it. Number. Um. So. Uh, this is the first part of the story where you kind of have to roll your eyes a little bit. But Roger Rojas claims that he is talking to the son of a former Japanese army officer. And the son says, oh, yeah, my dad said that there are caves around here full of looted gold that he had some had some part in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're right here, uh, just sort of buried you know, he he said it was somewhere over here near uh, the hospital in, by uh, Baguio City. So he's got a neighborhood in mind. Yeah, he's like, it's uh, just generally here by Baguio City, and it's, uh, yeah, so forth and so on. And then Roger also has an opportunity to interview or he meets Yamashita's interpreter during hmm. the war, who gives him an even better sense of like the... The treasure's right over here, you know, sort of like nearby uh, Treasure Point X. Now, there are a lot of—the story of Yamashita's gold is already sort of globally disseminated. There are treasure hunters everywhere seeking it, like Montezuma's gold. But uh, Roger Rojas, with a team of local guys, in 1971 discovers a cave, and they dig their way in, you know, a kind of rubble— rubble-blocked entrance. They dig their way through and they find a chamber, which is six foot tall by six foot wide by 35 feet long. And it's full of crates. This is verifiable. This is not a... 
This is not going to turn out to be an after-the-fact story. Well, Ken. Uh, we never know. And there in the cave is a three-foot-tall, solid gold Buddha. Plus all the crates. And then a lot of crates. Multiple crates. And the Buddha, if being three-foot-tall and half a ton and made of solid gold, 20-karat gold. That's a lot of gold. If, it, if that weren't enough. If you meet the Buddha on the road. The head of the Buddha comes off, and the Buddha itself was full of uncut diamonds. Well, that seems like it's a bit much. Well, That's so, somebody trying to improve a story. So, so he takes the Buddha, and he opens a box, and he finds in a box 24 bars of solid gold. You know, the boxes line the shelves. He doesn't open any other box. He just opens the one. And he's here with this team of laborers or whatever, and they somehow managed to get this half-ton solid gold Buddha out and, a, and one box of gold, and then they reseal the cave. So early 70s, he's back in his village. He makes no attempt to hide that he's found this Buddha or this gold. He's he, telling everybody. He's telling everybody. He's, there's even a picture of him in the newspaper with his gold Buddha. He sells... Seven of the bars of gold to, you know, to buy uh, some new duds or whatever. And then after he's made a little bit of a splash, some security officers from Marcos's government uh, arrive at his house and say, we need to take this Buddha and this gold. And they give him a couple of slaps for good measure and say, don't tell, tell anybody. Well, Rojas had actually gone and gotten a permit to treasure hunt from a local judge because it was state land, state-owned land. He got a permit from Judge Pio Marcos, a relative of Ferdinand Marcos. Interesting. That's, so, what, that's what you got to love about dictators is how many, how many family members get high-ranking appointments. Well, that and also the fact that there's a paper trail, right? They, they love to have, to have paperwork. So he had this paperwork authorizing him to to find this treasure. Well, Judge Marcos, you know, says, oh, uh, that's not what I meant or whatever. And he he goes to court. He is, he's harassed and, uh, and tortured and incarcerated by the Marcos regime. He is at some point presented, uh, Marcos says, we're going to give you the Buddha back. And he and they give him a brass Buddha. Hey, and the brass Buddha doesn't. It's not even full of uncut diamonds. What's it full of? Like uh, skittles? The head doesn't even come off the brass Buddha. Oh, come on. So they say, look, we're going to give you, let's say, four hundred thousand dollars if you sign this piece of paper that says this is the Buddha that you found, and then you shut up. But Rojas says, no, I won't. I won't do that. I'm a man of honor, and he sticks to his guns. And again, they. They, uh, they mistreat him enough that he goes silent. And through the yeah, 70s... I got to think the Marcos era legal system in, in the Philippines didn't give equal weight to the government and the common man. Well, and it's another one of those questions like your typical despot would just have disappeared this guy, right? Yeah. He would have been in a motorcycle crash and that would have been the end of that. Um, so again, it all is a little bit like doubtful, but in 1986, Marcos is deposed. Um, there's a, uh, you recall it. 
right? Yes. The, Exile in where? Hawaii? He, the, so the U.S. government says, oh, kind of like the Shah of Iran, the U.S. says, oh, this is our, uh, this is our dictator, and they give him asylum in Hawaii. Does his wife get to keep all the shoes? She does. She has 3,000 shoes she brings with her. Here's what they bring with them when they leave the Philippines. They were doing okay. Uh, so they're like escaping in the middle of the night, but the U.S. government sends a transport plane to evacuate them and their stuff. And here's what they bring. 22 crates of cash, U.S. dollars, $700 million in cash, 300 crates just filled with jewels and gems, $4 million in gems packed in Pampers boxes. In Pampers boxes? Pampers boxes. What happened to the Pampers? Uh, well, they must have been distributed. Maybe the Pampers were like padding the gems. Oh, maybe. A 12 by 4 foot crate just filled with pearls. Uh, a 3 foot tall solid gold statue. Mm-hmm. And $200,000 in gold bullion, among other things. This is just what they get out at the end of the, at the, end of the day, like rushing to the airport. Wait, wait, wait. Don't forget the 22 crates of, of money. Um, and Amelda's 3,000 3, pairs of shoes and so forth. This does seem like the kind of dictator who might have had access to lost caches of Japanese gold. Oh, that's right. Well, so at that point, Rojas, now that they're in Hawaii, he sues them in Hawaiian court, mm. U.S. court, for the lost, for the stolen Buddha. He's given standing, and the lawsuit convinces the jury— that there was a Buddha and these boxes of gold. Imagine being on this jury. I know. You're just some you're just shopkeeper from Oahu. And there are photographs. You know, there's this photograph that was in the newspaper. There's some, there's plenty of documentation that there was a Buddha. And maybe even in as late as 86 in Hawaii that he brought a Buddha. Well, yeah, it's not clear. What, I mean, there's a statue listed in his stuff. There's the statue. It's not clear whether it's a Buddha or what the story is. There, it is reputed that there were as many as 18 different Buddhas, 18 Buddha. And if you think about, if you think about what was going on in Asia, that they were making solid gold Buddhas, uh, you know, widely dispersed enough that this was a, this was actually like a source of plunder. And where does it wind up? Like that's a, that's a lot of resources for one monastery to just, you know, yeah, pour Millions of dollars worth of gold into. I mean, if you think about the number of hard to steal, I guess. Go- gold Buddhas you could make out of just the Catholic Church's global plunder. A lot of Buddhas. Uh, they're not likely to do so. It though. would be weird for various theological reasons. <laughs> Super weird. Right next to the Pieta, there you've got the solid gold, three foot tall Buddha. There's a. I'm sure there's a underground Vatican library full of all the. Yeah, there is no try, only do. It's a seized Buddha. bunch of gold uh, gold Yodas. This court determines. Um, that Marcos did, in fact, dispossess Rojas, uh, the humble locksmith. Oh, and one of the great— the, Rojas, the, the humble locksmith. The, the way his uh, locksmithery comes into play in the story is that as he was imprisoned multiple times by the Marcos regi- regime, he kept escaping by using his locksmith talents, and the— and the the uh, the army did not ever really take into account, like, you know, this guy is a locksmith. So like maybe <laughs> I don't know maybe not use locks or something maybe tie them up. With this a rope. is why there are no locksmith crackheads because they never 
we never find out about them because they never face justice. That's right. They're like the wind. Unfortunately, Marcos dies in 1989. Unfortunately? Uh, Well, what a tragedy. I miss the guy. I mean, by that time, it it was kind of a funny time because um, the world's press and even the American press loved his more democratic replacement, Corazon Aquino, right? right? And yet, uh, here the U.S. government is giving the Marcoses, the Marci, whatever they want. Yeah, right, and uh, but not not shielding them from prosecution. Apparently not. Um, Rojas transfers his rights to the stolen gold to a comp or to a corporation called the Golden Buddha Corporation that then sues on his behalf. Do they have to call it the Golden Buddha Corporation? Mm, that's what. That's what maybe they it should decided. be called the I don't have a Golden Buddha Corporation. <laughs> well, they ended up. Uh, so then Rojas himself dies in 1993, mm. but in 1996. The the uh, the jury returns a verdict that Marcos and and Amelda now Amelda being the she's, um, she's still alive yeah Amelda and she's still alive to this day Amelda is ninety four years old I think wow that they are culpable for twenty two billion dollars worth of gold because the jury that the jury speculated that based on the number of boxes that Rojas saw in this cave. If each had 24 bars of gold, the amount of gold plus the Buddha would have been $22 billion. Teaching juries multiplication was a mistake. Plus interest on the gold over the years. and it, it well, ended Plus up punitive being, damages. You don't want some other uh, Pacific Rim dictator trying this. Well, so punitive damages ended up being all he actually could collect because the Hawaiian Supreme Court in the late 90s said – we can't really base a judgment on what we speculate was in the boxes. That's just not possible to do. And in the end, there was a judgment of $13 million against Imelda, nine of which was for for the, you know, for personal damages to but, Rojas. But the jury actually intended Rojas himself or his, his estate or his estate. The Golden Buddha Corporation. To receive twenty two billion forty billion dollars because of the interest. Accrued. This wasn't like stuff that Marcos would have owed to a variety of uh, of Filipino claimants. No, no, this wow. was specifically this one cave, which of course was never found again. Although the speculation is that Marcos did find the cave, got everything, and got everything, and so this was the the booty that should have belonged to this one guy because he had the permit. It was Buddha booty. It was Buddha booty. Crazily, the bronze Buddha statue is, is still in a police station in uh, Baguio City waiting for the Golden Buddha Corporation to come collect it. They say, hey, here's your statue. Come any day. And they haven't. Does, does uh, Ross not have next of kin who want a big, I guess you got to get a truck. Yeah, well. I mean, it's gonna it's, it's it, gonna weigh tons. It's right? gonna be difficult then to keep pursuing this golden Buddha. Thus, the lawsuits. Oh, I see. They'd, he might forfeit his legal claim on the nicer stuff. That's if right. Except the the sham one. So in 1992, Corazon Aquino, kind of against what would have been her better judgment, allowed Imelda to return to the Philippines to defend herself against accusations that that the uh, the Marcoses had looted the nation of the Philippines and that the Philippines themselves were owed, uh, you know, right. billions and billions and billions upon billions of dollars. To defend herself in some kind of judicial proceedings yeah. or was there just a... Yeah. And Imelda on the stand 
said, look, we didn't loot the treasury of the Philippines. All of our wealth comes from Yamashita's gold, (gasps) which over the course of decades, we discovered in caves around the Philippines and took as our own money. I mean, that honestly, that seems like a plausible way in which some Asian dictator could have rooms full of gems and pearls, right? Right. I mean, and she's like, they're not buying all those at jewelers. They're not buying rooms full of pearls at a, at, you know. Yeah. Like a 12 foot long crate of, of pearls. Right. Where do you get that? But she was offering it as a defense, a legal defense to say, I'm, you can't prosecute me for looting the nation. Then she flies back to the U S and says, actually, we never found Yamashita's gold. Uh, that was all stuff we took from Filipino taxpayers. Ha ha. Well, what the, what the global conspiracy institution GCI believed. And this was, this was propagated. There, there, there was a journalist by the name of Sterling Seagrave and his wife, Peggy. And the two of them spent many decades uh, researching and writing about Yamashita's gold, uh, which they estimated to be 6,000 tons of gold. And their claim was that a, a general who uh, who after the war became a early C, an American general who after the war became a CIA early CIA operative by the name of Ed Lansdale Ed Lansdale actually in collaboration with Marcos discovered these many 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 caves 170 tunnels and caves filled with gold and he took the lion's share of that gold into what were called uh, uh, the the Asian equivalent of the Black Eagle Trust, the Black Gold Accounts, which he then funneled into the CIA in order to fund all the wars destabilizing Southeast Asia. And Lansdale, you know, had a had a storied career in the CIA in Vietnam and and throughout Southeast Asia. And again, where the where the money came from to you know, to prop up South or to prop up South Vietnam, you know, to wage all these insurgencies. Send Bob Hope over there. That's right. It all went into what became known as an the M Fund, which was, you know, this became an enormous fund of secret dark money. And depending on where you look, there are there are lots of people even today writing about what now would be hundreds of billions of dollars in CIA gold caches that they're using to, I mean, you wouldn't need to sell rockets to but Iran if you had all this cash. Isn't this just, you know, tempting because it's so much more romantic and telegenic to imagine caverns full of rubies than it is just to imagine uh, a U.S. Congress that'll just give the CIA whatever insane amount it wants to just regular malfeasance to blow up jungles it feels though like if marcos was a you know a sort of puppet dictator of the americans that if he were finding all this hidden gold at a time when he was just a you know like a young guy in a in a hawaiian shirt in a hawaiian shirt um that the U.S. government would have said, "Hey, you know, right? You get you get uh, this box of pearls. We'll take this other room full." Exactly. Well, Imelda Marcos then once back in the Philippines and 
having successfully defended herself by claiming the Yamashita's gold defense. Hold on a second. Does Imelda live in the Philippines to this day? She ran for the House of Representatives and was elected in 1995. I didn't remember that. And then was reelected four times, most recently in 2016. That's so funny because we think of her as like an 80s era late night monologue joke. It would be like finding out that uh, Tammy Faye Baker is actually the governor general of Canada. Yeah. And she ran for the, the mayor of Manila twice. She ran for the presidency of the Philippines two, two times. You can always bank on the old people who through rose colored glasses. Remember those as the good old days. Oh, Marcos. <laughs> I mean, that's cause I was still in my fifties and my reproductive system still worked. Vote Imelda. <laughs> You know, 3,000 pair of shoes is perfectly reasonable. I mean, that's a different pair of shoes every day for almost 10 years. I mean, today she would just be a beloved YouTube sneakerhead. Like back then we thought she was a weirdo, but she was just ahead of the culture. She was, she was. And now in her 90s, you know, living presumably comfortably sitting on her pile of pearls. Her pile of of Japanese treasure. That's the dream. And that concludes... Rojas v. Marcos, entry 1086.PR1506, certificate number 46804, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, uh, John and I were products of our time. We do not have caverns full of rubies and emeralds, but we do have bunkers full of our printed out social media posts squirreled away in the Filipino jungle where it can do no one any harm. We could uh, we could have boxes of uncut diamonds if only futurelings would send them to us. It all depends on your Patreon donations. <laughs> if, you're, if your grandfather collected a bunch of stolen Japanese gems. If you feel guilty about the Nazi and Japanese gold in your grandpa's basement, please send it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You can email us treasure maps uh, or scans thereof to the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, look for us at the Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick on various awful social media platforms. Um, look for like minded treasure hunters uh, by searching for the future links on Facebook or Reddit or Discord. The treasure in this case being entertaining and fun episodes of the Omnibus Project. Which are for everyone to enjoy. We don't hoard these. Mm-mm. We often, uh, if we're close to the wire, we often release them within days. <laughs> yeah. No, we said they are They are literally funding our own black ops, which are the ops of... What are yours? Buying guitars? Oh, no. No. I went to the guitar store yesterday, and all guitars are very expensive now. That's why you need... <laughs> so many of my guitars... to funnel you uncut... Gems. I paid $50 for like half of the guitars I own now. And even those, even the weird $50 guitars are worth $2,000 now. It's crazy. Crazy. No, I'm not. I wouldn't spend that money. I'm like you. It doesn't matter how much money I have. I'm not going to spend it on something that's not worth it. I mean, think about how much money Paul McCartney has in the gift back sessions and he's still playing that awful old Hofstra just because it's his security blanket. No, yeah, he loves that it, thing. It makes him feel cozy at night. But you know, whenever we're over at your house for dinner, you're like, yeah, well, this cut of meat was on sale. And I'm like, you're a millionaire. And you're like, well, I mean, what am I going to do? Spend a bunch of money on fancy meat? <laughs> you definitely want, I mean, there's some degree, I mean, I'm sure there's some amount of money where everyone's like, where you're like, no, spend the most you can on every item. 
Well, yeah, what amount would that be? I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of times the rich get that mental illness of never achieving that amount. And right. J. Paul Getty would rather just get his grandson's ear in the mail than, yeah. than pay a ransom. He sits and eats eats dry bran because it's virtuous. Yeah, he has a skippy peanut butter because Jif is uh, 18 cents more per jar. But then there are all those dummies that are like, make me a solid gold toilet. Make me a three foot tall solid gold toilet that looks like Buddha because I deserve it. I definitely am not immune from the, hey, I got a deal. I, yeah. You know, I spent, I wasted hours of my life researching, you know, how to get airline status or. Yeah, you were just talking about buying coach tickets and then rolling the dice on whether your status would get you an upgrade. <laughs> I'm like, come on. That's more like uh, thrill seeking, yeah, I think. Yeah, That's yeah. like, you know, there's really nothing actually risky happening in my life. Yeah. What if I don't get. What if I don't get my uh, complimentary upgrade? You're just playing chicken on the highway. Alaska Airlines is my, uh, is my, because I don't have a real life nemesis in my life. So I have to make it Alaska Airlines' computers. Well, and also, you know, you're not oversized. So even a coach seat is probably, if not commodious, at least fine. Here's here's the problem I always have with this. You don't drink alcohol. I do the math in my head on a lot of this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? The coach seat is maybe, it maybe does like 80% of the work of the fancy seat up front in that it gets you to your, you and your bags to your destination. Right. Uh, breathing oxygen and drinking free soft drinks, you yeah. know, uh, there's some, there's some additional 20% of perkage you get up front, but you're paying twice as much or more. And it makes me feel like I'm getting taken. Like the better money that va- proposition is in the back. Yeah. Well, you send me pictures sometimes sitting in these, like giant first class seats for your overseas flights because you're like, because you got upgraded or whatever. And I'm like, you know, you and Mindy could comfortably sit in that seat by yourselves. And but, then I could be in the seat behind. But what fun is it if we, uh, well, first of all, what <laughs> well, fun would it be to bring you? You'd be cuddling up there. But what fun would it be to buy that seat? To have somebody at the gate be like, oh, hold on, sir. You're in one A and B. I know that's you know, very exciting. It's a pretty great it. moment when the the machine has to spit out the emergency. Yeah. Wait, 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 no. Like must be in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> do, I, I should do that. I should do the Bob yeah. Eucher thing yeah. every every time that Ooh, happens. Must be in the front row. And the, the stewardess, depending on whether she was between the ages of forty five and fifty five, would would chuckle. So John's ability to fly in lie flat seats relies on you, the Patreon. I still wouldn't, I wouldn't spend the money on it. I'm, I'm the same way. You'd have to be so rich to care. There must be a degree of rich, but I don't think you or I will ever be there. I've never flown to Auckland, right? So I don't know what a 14 hour to Auckland flight is. I've flown from Dubai and that was terrible, but I, but they had in-flight movies. So I, I watched like what, six movies in a row? The time we got bumped up to the super nice seats to Europe, I really did arrive more rested. Yeah, oh, sure. I was like, hey, that is that is a little nicer. Sure. But again, I was like, but is it $14,000 nicer or whatever the fare difference is? One of the things you have to think about is how much of your dignity gets burned up, and that is exhausting. It's exhausting to sit and stew in your own slighted dignity. And in, which, think, in which cabin am I stewing? Well, that's the thing. When I arrive in a place where the travel has been difficult, it's not just that I didn't sleep or that I was, you know, that it was not restful, but I actually spent a lot of time like grinding my teeth. I think I enjoy it on some level. It's like, um, 
I'm having some Paul Bowles-style adventure to Marrakesh here yeah. in the back of uh, United Airlines. But you don't weigh 250 pounds. <laughs> like, those seats, when, when they, like, have a scale of, like, well, we're going to make these seats for the average traveler, 250 pounds is right on the level where if you go on one of those guided horse riding trips on the Oregon beach, they're like, you can't be too, like, we don't have a horse. We have one that, Clyde. That Del- horse died. Yeah, but he's retired. <laughs> there's no horse that can carry you. And I'm like, there's no horse that can carry me? Famously strong as a, nope, sorry. Yeah. And and that's true also of the, the coach seats in Alaska Airlines. It's like, that's not for you. Which all the airlines have been shrinking at the yeah. same rate as Americans have been growing as a, as a bit. They're yeah. doing it as a bit. Yeah, they are. Like, what if we just kept making these smaller instead of bigger? Would you like a seatbelt extender, sir? I mean, I my, literally my hips don't fit in between yeah. the armrests. You <laughs> bastard! There is no extender. You need some kind of some kind of fourth dimensional portal <laughs> that makes your seat bigger on the inside than on the outside. Um, so yeah, we promise not to spend the money on anything crazy. No, no if you no. were to if you were to listen to this show and be like, you know what? Why don't I support this Patreon? We promise we wouldn't throw it away on on life flat seats on British Airways. My daughter has started insisting that we get Annie's brand macaroni and cheese. She's like, the craft just tastes terrible. I want Annie's. I'm like, oh, aren't you a fancy pants? That Annie's is sometimes, you know, $1.50 a box instead of the 99 cents. Is she right? Oh, yeah. I know craft is so much better than store brand. Is there a similar jump? Yeah, I think Annie's is just made out of... I mean, it says organic on the box. That can't be wrong. It must be good, then. Yeah. It must be good. Organic government cheese. Please help keep John's kids in fancy Trader Joe's mac and cheese by going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and checking out all the rewards available to our generous donors. Thank you for your support. And thank you, uh, Jimmy, for suggesting the topic for today's show. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.